Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. Uh, before we get into our topic of the day, I do want to take time to acknowledge that today is our 100th episode. Woo! Um, it's been a long way since we uh, started just even just talking about the idea of having a show to talk about workplace issues. You know, it's been almost three years now, and I would like to express my thanks for everybody who has helped make this possible. I, I did a little counting before the show, and there have been 44 different hosts of this show, which is really wow. cool. Um, so thank you to everybody. I don't know if either of you two want to make any acknowledgments or say anything about the occasion. Yeah, I'd like to say, you know, this has been a really great opportunity for us to talk about work as a, a function of our lives. Uh, we don't often get to think about work as 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 anything other than what a lot of people take it for, which is something natural, part of the natural cycle of living and, and just as um, inevitable as anything else. It's not. It's a result of the world we live in. And this show really gives us the opportunity to discuss that and to challenge any kind of assumptions that go into work and labor. Uh, that it's expected that you have to do it, that um, enriching the, the lives of your overlords is um, the right way to go about life. Uh, so this show is, is really a fantastic opportunity that I, I'm so grateful to all the people who have contributed ideas and their time. This is, we're all volunteers. None of us are paid to do this, um, kind of ironically, but not really. So this is, it's, it's a fun thing to do. And honestly, if you want to talk about work with us, uh, our email is somewhere in the credit somewhere. Uh, Punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. There you go. Give us a, a, a email and we'll have you on the show and we'll talk about work. Um, cause it's really fun. And I've met a lot of really great comrades doing this and I am looking forward to doing another 500 episodes. Let's do it. <laughs> It'll take us like 10 years. <laughs> Welcome That's fine. Back to thinking out. Welcome back to Thinking Out. <laughs> um, there's a person in an organization I'd like to thank here. Um, the first, obviously, Wayo gave us a space to do this. They've worked with us. They've been extremely accommodating, even when we came up with weird requests like, how do we get two people to call in at the same time? Or uh, whenever we called them in a panic, being like, I can't figure out why the microphones aren't producing any sound, uh, even on a Sunday morning. Why the Chalmers brothers, or who was it that was coming in? The Chambers Chamber brothers. brothers. Chambers <laughs> brothers, yeah. So they've been extremely good to us, and we can't thank them enough. And then the other person that obviously we'd like to thank is sitting right here in this room, and it's Ryan, because Woo! He's produced, if not every single episode, the vast majority of them. It was his idea to do this in the first place. And so the 100 episodes that you've heard of this show absolutely would not have happened without him. And uh, if you're somebody who listens to the show and, and you really like it, and I know there's a few of you out there, it's him that you need to thank more than anybody else. Absolutely. Is it warm in here? Or <laughs> um, Now, 
to the topic at hand. Uh, there was a story that came across the news. Was it, was it last week or the week before that? Um, last week. Last yeah. week. Headline, Chipotle fined $1.3 million over thousands of child labor abuses. Thousands. Thousands. Love, love, to, love to abuse child labor. Now, you, that headline caught my eye because you don't think of child labor being an issue anymore. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, of course, there are rules dictating, you know, how long teenagers are allowed to work. You know, they're students. They have to mm-hmm. be able to be up early in the morning to go to high school at ridiculously early hours. But mm-hmm. that's another matter. Um, and these are the laws that Chipotle was in violation of. Just from the... First uh, paragraph here, Chipotle was hit with a $1.3 million fine over more than 13,000 child labor violations at its Massachusetts restaurants, the state's attorney general announced Monday. Which So that's like $100 per violation or something, right? Yeah, that's something how like the math that. works. Yeah, that's... Very uh, low, yes. Continue. I, I also should know, I mean, this being a Massachusetts investigation, who knows what's going on on a countrywide scale. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, on the countrywide scale, I'll tell you right now, I'm kind of amazed that these are still things that are actually illegal, according to the Department of Labor that we have and the Congress that we have. Because if there's one thing that you tune into punching out for, it's discussion of how the Department of Labor is changing the law. Mm-hmm. And one thing that they've done they have rolled back protections on teenage workers under the guise of allowing them to gain experience and so on. I remember on a previous episode, we reported that they had rolled back the age requirement for operating heavy machinery for like longer than an hour or something from 17 to 16 or it, it was some some minimal change like that, but it it signals their priorities. So it, it's kind of incredible that even in this day and age, you can actually hit a company with a lawsuit for any kind of worker abuse. Mm-hmm. In Massachusetts, might have its own laws. By for uh, no, it does absolutely. Yeah. But I'm kind of surprised the Department of Labor hasn't just said, yeah. you know what, state labor laws no longer apply if they're better. Um, specifically, hmm. what happened uh, laid out in this ABC News article, which I think is just coming from the AP. The fine detailed that Chipotle had employees under the age of 18 working past midnight and for more than 48 hours a week, which nobody should work more than 48 hours a week, much less a a teenager. Mm -hmm. Teenagers told investigators their hours of work were so long that it was preventing them from keeping up with their schoolwork. The company also regularly hired minors without work permits. Oh, awesome. That's, That's great. I mean, uh, I'm going to put my teacher voice on for a second and be like, yes, I'm sure that's what what was keeping them from keeping up with their schoolwork. But now that I've gotten that out of the way, I think what strikes me about this is that whenever you talk about the kind of jobs that Chipotle and Walmart and other big employers are going to offer at absolutely rock bottom wages, the defense of minimum wage jobs in our economy is always, 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 always. There are jobs for high schoolers. There are jobs mm-hmm. for people paying their way through school, which is ridiculous in this day and age. There are jobs for, you know, essentially part-time jobs for people who could just stand to make a, co- a few extra bucks because their living costs they're, they're are They're on their way to something better right. yeah. is the assumption. And that's not true at all, and we know that on this show. And if you don't know that, then – the average age of minimum wage workers is like 28. Yeah, mm-hmm. and climbing. Mm-hmm. So if you don't know that, I'm sorry to have to be the one to lift the scales from your eyes, but here we are. Um, but what this tells us is that even when those jobs are being given to the people that stereotypically should be in them, 
they're still getting treated worse than they're supposed to be. I don't think anybody in their right mind, if they were constructing this from scratch, would be like, yes, you know what's a good idea. Let me have this person who needs to get up ridiculously early to go to school, who's got a ton of busy work to do when they get home, who's got parents and pets and friends and an actual social life and uh, presumably some video games to play in there. Um, Let me give this person 48 hours of work. Let me make them stay up past midnight. That is... No one would want that. Yeah. That is straight up abuse pretty much in anybody's eyes. And and I think the broader point we're going to make throughout this episode is, you know, these are people working in their first jobs. And so they might not know any better or mm-hmm. that these things are illegal, that mm-hmm. these things are against the law. Chipotle seems to have been committed to just breaking as many rules as they <laughs> the Setting Continuing from the story, the settlement is closer to $2 million, including penalties for earned sick time violations in which managers granted employees paid time off only for certain illnesses. Violations also include failure to keep accurate records and pay timely wages. Um, so just really running Classic. the gamut. And that bit about uh, only offering sick time for certain illnesses, it reminds me of there was a great uh, Jimmy John's worker mm-hmm. campaign for uh, paid sick leave, which they had um, a poster, a, a picture of two subs, effectively. And can you tell which one was made by a sick employee, which is a very effective one. And one mm-hmm. day, I, I think the company challenged that, and but the courts ruled that they could use that imagery. Which, Good. Yeah. Yeah, because um, Chipotle, you know, noted company that has – never had an illness outbreak <laughs> from Definitely any not. part of its business. Nope. That's never happened. Yeah, uh, that, that's particularly ironic. When it comes to child labor laws, this is, I've already said this this year, but the ni- the 2020s are going to be exactly like the 1920s. Uh, you know, we're, we're fighting the, the battle of maybe don't make the youths have to work full-time jobs in order to eat. It's a weird idea, I know. But historical note, if I remember correctly... The Child Labor Act was passed in the 1910s <laughs> because, you know, children were working in mines yeah. and, you know, spending hours down there serving as, uh, you know, fitting themselves into as small space as possible. So what I'm saying is it, it looks like not only are you right, mm-hmm. you are more right than you know. <laughs> it looks like the 2020s are just going to be even worse than the 1920s. Yeah. Child labor in general is – there's there's so many different facets of it to come in. There's um, you know typically the the traditional fast food work, which I know a guy who hires kids because he needs just basically arms to carry things, um, and he definitely puts his teens through what he calls the mirror test of hiring. Have you ever heard of that? No. Okay, you hold a mirror up to their face, and if it fogs up, you hire them. Oh, that thing. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, but even even he has like standards and won't make. Well, his... he can't hire zombies. Yeah, he can't hire zombies. There, that's for sure. But, but like he, you know, you don't make a kid that's under the age of eighteen mess around with boiling hot grease mm. or knives or anything like that. Like that's a it. Fast food work can be very dangerous. Yeah. And the fact that it's it's almost in in a lot of people's minds exclusively staffed by teens or should be staffed by teens is a little inconsistent with the work itself. And it's also inconsistent with, with what has increasingly become reality. We we mm-hmm. talked about how the age of minimum wage workers has gone up, but there's a there was a story in the New York Times uh, two years ago, 
Headline, a fast food problem. Where have all the teenagers gone? <laughs> um, starts, School, where they should be. A quarter century ago, there were 56 teenagers in the labor force for every limited service restaurant. That is, the kind where you order at the counter. Today, there are fewer than half as many, which is a reflection both of teenagers' decreasing workforce participation and of the explosive growth in these restaurants. And story lays out how... This is an industry that relies on cheap labor. You know, mm-hmm. they need teenagers in order to do these things because if you're above that age, you you have other – you have bills to pay. Obligations, yeah. yeah. And so, of course, the way the New York Times is going to report this is as though that's a problem that the rest of us need to solve instead of maybe, I don't know, the industry could change. <laughs> it, it is amazing to me. We invest business people with the uh, this this stereotype or this idea that business people, entrepreneurs, uh, corporate CEOs, whatever, that they're innovative, that they're visionaries, that they're the people on the bleeding edge of the ideas that our society needs to implement because that's what's at the heart of the whole like give the government over to businessmen because they know how to run it, run things best. And every time you look at the actual reality of things and uh, – how things are going in our society, the actual truth of the matter is that businesses don't want to change. And if they're going to change, they are going to do so by cheating, by abusing, by doing the worst possible thing in search of a quick buck. They're never going to do it by actually wanting to change because that might require them taking a pay cut at some point. Um, the the first person quoted in this uh, New York Times article is a Jeffrey Kaplow who manages a Subway restaurant in Lower Manhattan. Quote, Mr. Kaplow has tried everything he can think of to find workers, placing Craigslist ads, asking other franchisees for referrals, seeking to hire people from subways that have closed. Yet there he was during a recent lunchtime rush, ringing up veggie footlongs and fountain drinks. He feared that if the line grew too long, people might get frustrated and not come back. Oh, dear. And I would just note, I can think of one thing that was not included in that everything he could think of. Increasing pay? Yes. Yeah. Wow. Well, that wouldn't be too easy. Yeah, like he the way he was asking for people to apply to his job is basically saying like, hey, everybody else, send people my way instead mm-hmm. of yeah. I'm just baffled by stupidity. Well, no, that's because all. that's that's what a bad manager does and most managers are bad managers. That's what they do. They shuffle work off on everybody else, including the work that is – 100% within their job description. Mm-hmm. If you're the manager of a restaurant, it is your job to find employees to staff it. And even and even that this guy wasn't willing to do, let alone think of any, no pun intended because it is a subway, fresh new ideas <laughs> to attract employment. This is, this is something, again, that we've talked about before on this show that increasing pay is the forbidden idea. You simply cannot allow it because if you increase pay, then everyone else will start demanding it. And then, you know, the slippery slope is engaged and we're all just hurtling towards a disaster mm-hmm. where workers' lives are improved. And that's a problem. You yeah. don't want that apparently. One uh, possible reason for this decline in teenagers in the workforce is uh, laid out in this article, at least, is the idea that, you know, there's an increased emphasis on education. You know, Mm -hmm. high schoolers are working harder than ever to get scholarships because college costs more than ever. And and it's increasingly a competitive process to get into the places that are seen as Mm -hmm. necessary to get a good job, something that won't leave you working at a subway. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the the rationale that these kids have to play is either I spend all of my time and effort um, 
basically playing the lottery that is co- that are college scholarships, mm-hmm. um, in which case I can have a potential, like a, a glimmer of a chance of graduating debt-free, or at least not with $100,000 in debt or more. Or I can work real hard at a subway for whatever that state's minimum wage is. By the way, quick reminder, federal minimum wage is $7.25. Still. Still has been for over a decade. Uh, This is the game. That's the rationale. Like who in the world is going to say I'm going to work for seven, eight, ten dollars an hour, which will never in a million years pay for college. Mm -hmm. Like you will never be able to pay for college at that rate. It won't even let you pay for a semester of college. No, you won't. You won't play pay for a semester of college. You won't pay for the living expenses to go to college. Like let's forget assume that you're not paying for any college. You're going to take out loans for all of it. You won't even be able to afford the living costs Mm -hmm. for going to school and not being able to work full-time or even working full-time. That's not going to happen. So yes, of course the teens are going to to spend all their time on school. That's also what every single adult in their life is telling them to do, is that this is the only way you're going to make it is if you go to college, if you get a white-collar job. That's the only way. And then you have a whole bunch of other idiots in the government saying, well, we need more teens in the workforce. No. Okay. I'm going to get intergenerational for a second here. (laughs) But this is the ultimate realization of the boomer view of the world. Because what this is is people thinking that we still live in freaking Mayberry and that if you're a teenager, you go to school and you do your homework for a couple, maybe an hour a night, and maybe you play on a sports team or or you do some other activity, and then you have a couple hours at, you know, the soda fountain later <laughs> on at night, and then you run into Andy Griffith at some point. The, the soda fountain, as you well know now, has been replaced by Fortnite. Yes. <laughs> Well, no, it's, uh, yeah. Senior teen <laughs> correspondent, Noah. <laughs> Continue. But the 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 reason that the number of hours that these guys were working in particular strikes me as especially abusive when you take into account the fact that the increased competitiveness of, of college admissions, the way that we've done it is not just to make it so that, you know, you have to have like a 4.0 grade point average to get in now because that's what everybody has, so blah, blah, blah. Uh, we haven't made it by saying you need to be you need to have this number of APs to get into any college at all. No, the way we've done it is by increasing formal time commitments. So not just how do I put this? Not just how well you do at things, but how long you spend doing them. Yeah. So now it's service hours, which are no matter what, no matter how good or bad a job you do with them, they're taking time out of your schedule. Now it's you have to take the SAT. Oh, guess what? Now the SAT requires that for most kids that you take a review or prep course because you're not really trained to take it until you do one of those. So that's a set amount of hours that you're being taken out of your schedule. So it doesn't matter how much you're – even if your school and some schools are – trying to make it easier on you by reducing your structured obligations, the rest of the world is piling them on. And then comes some dingus managing a Chipotle in Massachusetts saying, no, no, you also have to give up 48 hours of your time to do this. So that's taking time away from your sleep. That's taking time away from Fortnite. That's taking time away from, (laughs) well, what Fortnite enables you to do, which is have a social life and relax. That's taking time away from all of your other obligations, all of your what we might call like a teenage version of social reproduction that allows you to actually go do your schoolwork, go do your actual part-time, hopefully part-time job that you would have. 
So they are getting, they're squeezing teenagers coming and going here. Mm. And I mean, I know that I crack a lot of jokes about how teenagers aren't doing enough and so on. And I doubt that we have a bunch of Zoomer listeners hanging around. But this is unconscionable to me because from the other side of things, you get constantly told as a teacher that the reason you can't put greater obligations on your students, that you can't ask them to do this or that or blah, blah, is they have so much else to do. And my thought on that is, well, okay, why aren't we trying to change those things? Why aren't schools telling colleges, I'm sorry, you're putting too much of a burden on your on the people that are applying to you? Why aren't schools telling workplaces, you can't do more than this? Because I happen to know that work permits come through school offices. Mm-hmm. Yep. So why can't the school tell a place, hey, I'm sorry, we're not going to issue work permits for kids trying to apply to jobs there. We know you're abusive to your employees. That kind of thing. That could actually have a material change. But we're not going to do that. We're instead going to place the blame all on the people who work at schools and the teenagers who work at places, the people who are least Mm -hmm. able to affect either of those situations. Because that's what we always do. We blame the worker for not being good enough, not the system that puts the worker in an untenable position. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, Mm -hmm. One brief little tangent before we uh, have to take a break and move on to our next segment. You know, the restaurant industry – as a whole, you know, not just fast food is rife with wage theft. Mm-hmm. Um, it's rife with sexual harassment, common. you know, and a, a number of other workplace abuses, but wage theft especially because so many of those workers are reliant on tips. And as we mentioned earlier, you know, this is their first job. They might not know what to look for in their paycheck as far as what's being taken out and what should be there. It's something that we've seen just in the few years of the Trump administration. The government has taken more of a blind eye towards the Obama administration had implemented a rule that would prevent uh, companies that were sued for wage theft from getting federal contracts, which was you know quietly removed by the Trump administration. They changed the joint employer rule, which will make it more difficult for workers to bring cases against companies like McDonald's and Subway, which franchise out their restaurants. Mm-hmm. And because these workers are new, they're young, they're inexperienced, they are being taken advantage of throughout the industry. Yeah. And, and even if they're not, mm-hmm. what are they going to do? If you if you're working one of these jobs these days, it tends to be because you're between jobs, you got laid off, you got fired, what is it? You don't you nobody very few people these days mm-hmm. are going to work at a fast food restaurant or even a fine dining restaurant mm-hmm. because they have a ton of options hanging around. Mm-hmm. And the result of that is that it enables an industry that is uh, I mean absolutely horrendous to its employees. Wage theft is the most common form of theft in the United States. Mm-hmm. And you're allowed to crack jokes about how the government taking taxes out of your pay th- uh, out of your paycheck is jacking your money or, you know, thieving, but you're not allowed to say that your boss taking money out of your paycheck so they can buy a slightly bigger boat is theft, even though it is in a much more real sense because that money is going into one pocket. Yeah. And people just sit there and go like, yeah, these two things are completely, you know, this one I'm allowed to do. This one is uh, beyond the pale. Well, a lot of this stuff is stuff that technically you're not allowed to do. You know, it's against the law in a variety of ways. But one lesson of the Trump era has been that the law doesn't matter as much as the willingness to actually enforce it, to mm-hmm. bring down punishments against those who violate it. Because mm-hmm. if you don't. Who's going to stop you? Yeah. 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 Doesn't matter. 
You, you can't do government by executive order. That was the sin of the Obama administration that because they didn't have a Congress that they could control, they tried to do everything via the White House. And now we're seeing the exact limits that that puts on your power. Yeah. We'll be back after this break to talk about more people trying to break into the workforce and, you know, how that's going for them. <laughs> You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. We're talking today about the ways in which workers seeking their first job or working their first job get taken advantage of. And one big way they do is by being made to go through unpaid internships before they even get to that first job. Unpaid internships are legal and probably shouldn't be. But <laughs> yeah, I agreed. I, I, just to I, we get wrote, that out in front. The, the 13th Amendment exists. Yep. But nevertheless, they are required for... a a number of industries, especially the white-collar industries, the, the things people go to college for. You know, mm -hmm. Journalism yeah. is notorious for this. Um, Publishing, um, basically any creative endeavor. I will say, so internships are, are like the staple of the, I, I guess, industry for people bound to college or in college. I remember, you know, in college, there was all this pressure to sign up for internships. There mm -hmm. were all these opportunities that were very, you know, pushed on us. So, so let's be clear. We have to differentiate here mm -hmm. because if you're a computer science major or you're a STEM person, mm -hmm. the chances that your internship will be unpaid is a lot lower. Yes. There are people who are going to go to work to uh, to work for Microsoft or Google this summer and are going to make the equivalent of a six-figure salary for a couple months of work so that they can, and then go back to school. Right. Meanwhile, there are going to be people who for 10 years after they get out of college with a bunch of debt are going to be doing unpaid internships, which they can either afford because they have family resources and a bunch of other options and are able to work other jobs that pay them actual money to live on or that they can ill afford and that they're scraping together a living by, I don't know, being content creators on some or some social media platform mm -hmm. or another. This is yet another way in which we privilege certain types of work. Mm -hmm. If you are if if you're a researcher, if you're doing um if if you're doing something that's considered necessary work basically mm -hmm. for the I don't know quote unquote 72 point air quotes betterment of the country, you get to actually be paid for what you're doing. Mm -hmm. If you're not, if it's if the rest of the world or the rest of society views it as an indulgence that only rich people get to do, then you, for some reason, end up having to suffer the famous of indulgence that. journalism. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the the rules around internships have changed too in the past few years. Yeah. Um, so previous under the Obama administration, basically all unpaid internships were pretty much illegal. <clears throat> we should clarify again. Legal doesn't mean they weren't happening. Yeah, they were happening all over Not the place. Not at all. Yeah, everybody knows somebody or, or have heard but of somebody. Who the did Obama administration did pass a rule that made it harder to justify not paying your workers. Right. Um, mm -hmm. It had to meet very strict requirements in order to fit right. the bill. Basically, like if you were contributing in any way to your company's bottom, uh, line. bottom line or the the actual labor of their their 
industry or whatever. The thing they do. The thing they do. There you go. Uh, then that internship should be paid. Um, so if you were copy editing, if you were fact checking, if you were reading manuscripts, if you were you know, running things to your boss in the middle of the night, that's all stuff that should be paid. Doesn't mean that they were being paid because there were plenty of internships that just openly said, no, you're not getting paid, dude. Chill what's, out. What's the quote? There's no law, only enforcement. Yep. True. Um, but now the Trump administration has rolled back that, who's surprised, um, and basically said that any internship in which you are facilitating the work. Complimenting. Complimenting That's the, rule. the work. It has to complement, not displace, the work of paid I, employees. Yeah, I, I can just quote. Uh, this is from an article in Jacobin because this small rule change wasn't covered much in a lot of other outlets. Go uh, figure. Yeah. Mm. On January 8, 2018, the six criteria were replaced with seven, and unlike before, there was no requirement that all of them be met. Instead, whoever is seeking to determine the legality of an internship will have to judge the extent to which each criteria is true and decide on a case-by-case -case basis. And anytime you have a case-by-case -case basis, that's going Not to good. mean yeah. that, that puts the onus on the person who is you know, being exploited to mm – -hmm. Bring the case to court. And, and then face friend of the show, Neil Gorsuch, <laughs> who is famously okay with people freezing to death. Yeah. Uh, gone is the rule preventing companies from benefiting from their unpaid interns. The closest facsimile says that a legal unpaid intern work complements rather than displaces the work of paid employees. See, but it has to be better because it's got seven criteria instead of six. Obviously. So clearly Effectively, what this creates is you know, labor's free now. You know, yeah. if, if you can convince some college student to do his job for free or their job for free, mm -hmm. nobody's going to stop you. And, you know, they mentioned in that piece in Jacobin, um, the, the author mentions that this wasn't covered except for Bloomberg, which covered it in a slyly triumphant tone, if I remember my quote <laughs> that, exactly. That's exactly correct. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> how surprising is it that a change to unpaid internships making them openly legal and more abusive than they've ever been because let's be clear, they were already pretty much legalized white-collar slavery or sort of semi-legalized white-collar slavery. Go figure that by an industry that relies on them, that runs on them, somehow no one felt the need to mention this. Somehow – the Times, The Post, uh, be it Washington or Denver, somehow no major news agency felt the need to discuss this probably out of um, – I'm, I'm guessing out of fear that uh, someone paid intern might see it and get <laughs> angry. Yeah. Just to make clear what the negative impacts are that beyond just like people not getting paid for their work is this results in, in journalism and related industries uh, – those industries becoming havens for rich kids whose parents mm -hmm. can afford to, you know, cover their expenses for the summer where they're working their first internship at NPR or what have you. Mm -hmm. And then those kids are not particularly going to be driven to cover stories that, you know, affect like the rest of us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a really good example of why – the blindness that, that a lot of these industries have to the plight of normal people uh, is so pervasive because they are convinced that this is a good system, that exploiting this labor just makes sure anybody in, entering this industry is really dedicated to it, that they're you know passionate about it and they're not just after a quick buck because that will weed out people who aren't really interested. When one it does is it just – 
enforces the same sort of people that keep entering that workforce. People who have wealthy backgrounds, who have the support, who have the networking, who, who are have just like in the industry. Yeah, who who mm -hmm. are just like everybody else already in it. This is not a, a it will it cannot be in fact a, a system that weeds out the unwilling. And this blindness that they continue to have to it is annoying. <laughs> Yep. To say the least. Well, because what it ends up doing is you hear all, you hear a lot of people uh, complain that journalism was ruined when it became a thing that you had to go to school for and you had to get a master's for and you had to read all of these. And essentially, once it became – like it used to be a working class job to be a journalist in some way, shape or form. It used to be it, – it wasn't easy and it wasn't glamorous, uh, but it was necessary work that had to be done. And then now what you have is increasingly the people on the the people who are being covered and the people who are covering them run in the same social circles. Mm -hmm. They're they might be friends, they might even be relatives in an increasing number of cases. So there's no incentive yeah. to go negative or to be remotely truthful um, in the pieces that you're putting out. Yeah. And, and access that, and power are the same. Exactly. And we've talked on this show before about what that does uh, to specific fields of journalism, like sports and so on. But now it now it's becoming a problem in general that the only people you've got who are able to actually make tracks in this world are rich kids. And I think we're all thinking of one particular rich kid who has an undeserved job in the journalism industry. Before we get to that. I, okay, good. In researching for this show, I... I there seems to have been some sort of uh, broad discourse about unpaid internships in the early part of last decade, perhaps mm. around the time when Obama was uh, creating the rules around this. The Obama administration was creating the yes. guidelines. Oh, wow. But Last decade was the 2010s. Because yeah, yeah. <laughs> in researching for this show, I came across multiple articles and outlets like Slate and The Atlantic about the issue. Um, one that caught my eye was this one in The Atlantic by Derek Thompson, in which he had invited readers who had worked these unpaid internships to reach out to him and to you know, tell him about their experiences and whether they liked the fact that these jobs were not paid. One of these uh, reader stories that caught my eye, uh, quote, unpaid internships cannot continue to exist. It's really immoral. Not only is college ridiculously expensive, students are now required to spend their summers for no money. For example, in the broadcast industry, internships are concentrated in New York, Atlanta, and Los Angeles. The cost to move there and work for no money eliminates thousands of low-income students from what is essentially required to gain future employment after graduation. And the press wonders why their ranks are so often colorless. It's, these things have real material effects, not mm -hmm. just on the interns, but on, as we've been saying, industries and the people mm -hmm. shut out of those industries. Yeah, it, it enables diversity committees and, and human resources people to sit around and fart around about why don't we have a more diverse workforce, but none of the systemic inputs is being taken uh, – are being taken, sorry, into account. It's just meaningless drivel. I, I actually did I, – I literally just realized uh, that the internship I did in college by the – rules that the Obama no. administration had set out would absolutely be illegal. There is a certain magazine that if you read something like seven or eight articles mm -hmm. uh, between June and August 2007, I wrote my names on yeah. them. You know, they're yeah. actual published pieces and I was doing them despite the fact that I was not paid for any of that labor. 
And like you said, Ryan, it was the first time I've ever done anything like that. I had no idea about its legality. I had no idea about whether anything I was doing was uh, even allowed or not. Yeah, it was the exposure. It was yeah. the foot in the door. Oh, they didn't even tell me that part. <laughs> <laughs> it's experience. You know? It's experience, yeah. The, yeah. Uh, the headline of that Jacobin piece was uh, Let Them Meet Experience, which <laughs> I, I thought was good. That's now, for a contrarian take, one should always look towards <clears throat> Slate.com. Yes. Uh, because that is where you'll find writers who – Try to find the devil's advocate position on almost any issue. And don't we just love those people? And so they're in, the best. In December of 2013, there's this article headline Two Cheers for Unpaid Internships by Matthew Iglesias. Okay, hold up. Two cheers? Why two? Why not three? I don't know. Is the third one only if you get paid? Is that the <laughs> one? All right, whatever. Friend of the show, Matthew Iglesias. Let's go. The abolitionists, which is how he describes the people who want to make unpaid internships illegal, have this all wrong. The fact that well-designed internship programs offer training that isn't similar to what you get in school is part of what makes them valuable. And the fact that employers benefit from the work of interns is exactly what makes it reasonable to offer internships. What does that mean? So if I'm honest, I'm going to drive right to the heart of what I think is happening here. Matt mentions at one point... As long as an internship does offer some practical educational value, letting the intern, quote unquote, pay with menial labor rather than five-figure tuition fees is a great deal. I got an enormous amount of practical career advice in the summer of 2000 doing an internship for Rolling Stone, where my day-to-day responsibilities consisted overwhelmingly of fetching an editor's coffee and making Xeroxes. The bulk of the work was tedious and annoying, but a handful of substantive assignments and lunchtime conversations with experienced professionals was worth the price of entry. Now, what Matt's not telling you is that he's the son of a uh, of a novelist who got to go to Harvard, who uh, has been around rich people from the get-go. Mm-hmm. Career advice is all he ever needed. And by career advice, what I mean, he all he needed was go talk to that guy at that magazine and he'll get you a job. Tell him I sent you. That's literally what he's saying. That's all he's saying. And I might add that the reason that those were his responsibilities is because the people at Rolling Stone – know that Matt's a rich kid who can't be expected to do much work. So they gave him the plum assignment. But if you're an unpaid intern at Rolling Stone now, I guarantee you that you're ghostwriting. I guarantee you that you're doing work that you should not be doing. Matt got lucky because he took his internship in you know the halcyon days of the waning 20th century and with a bunch of money in his bank account already. This is, uh, you know, essentially what he's saying is, Different for me, so yeah. yeah. He's he's saying you know different uh, different eras of different standards for unpaid internship, and that's okay. Yeah, it's you don't have to be the devil's advocate about unpaid labor. Don't do that. Yeah, yeah. Th- this is a this is one of the ultimate hot takes that just wasn't needed. And part of his argument is this idea that if not for unpaid internships. Students would have to get more credentials in order to get the jobs that they want. And that's an argument for making college cheaper and not right. for letting companies exploit unpaid labor. Right. Every single argument he puts forth is not the argument, if you spend any more than like two seconds thinking about it, is not the argument that he thinks he's making. Like at one point he's talking, he talks about how it's really important that that unpaid internships exist because then they would have to hire the best person and not just anyone which like yeah dude that's not a terrible thing 
Uh, that's yeah. That's because companies are famous for always hiring the best person. You know what hiring <laughs> process is? You know what's a one word that describes every hiring process? Meritocratic. That's it. <laughs> that's the consistency there. Absolutely. And meanwhile, he's. It's not only an argument for making college cheaper, which it is as well. But then that might devalue Maddie's Harvard degree. So you know we can't do that. But it's also an argument for. He says it in. It's in the subheading of the article. It says, America needs more on-the-job learning, not less. Yes, it does. You used to be paid for doing that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Maddie is here going out of his way to defend corporations for, once again, what we said in the first segment, for sloughing off work Mm -hmm. onto schools, onto young people, onto everyone else, and then blaming them when they get angry about it. I mean, you've talked about this on your human resentments episodes. You know, the time allotted for training new employees is smaller than ever. It's Mm -hmm. not there. You know, companies don't want to pay to train the people who have to do things for them. Because if they're going to get – if they're going to pay you, which you do have to pay employees if you're training them Mm -hmm. most of the time, if they're going to pay you, they want to squeeze labor out of you for that length of time, you know? There's no – again, they're going to get you coming and going. Companies, corporations, they can't take the possibility of any variability in their profit, in their bottom line. And the yeah. way that they're going to do that is by minimizing the amount of time that you spend employed by them and paid by them where you are not working at your utmost and beyond your utmost as we saw in the first segment. And Matt here who gets to essentially – fail upwards for his entire career because that's all he's ever done. It just gets to sit there and rub his crappy beard thoughtfully and say, <laughs> you know what we need is we need to expose more people to these uh, to, to this unbalanced danger because yeah. clearly everybody is sitting on a bunch of savings that, you know, his dad gave right. him. One thing he says that unpaid internships are an antidote to is the, the on-the-job training. One solution he offers to that is that schools like high schools should come with a job and he talks about schools in washington dc and new york city who are almost certainly charter schools should be noted that provide their students with an opportunity to work in real companies so in order to get around the issue of unpaid internship rules he wants to get around child labor laws yes and i was going to say and as we've seen yeah. Companies are not any less abusive to their workers when those workers are children, if anything, quite the opposite. Mm-hmm. But this is a model you see now. I mean, we know people who've gone to schools that are that way. Mm-hmm. I've met with teachers who uh, work at schools that offer internships as part of their educational program. And I mean, I haven't really sat down with them and, and asked them, do you think that this creates an, a more abusive environment for workers <laughs> or not? You know. I I haven't really had to have that discussion with them, but you definitely get the sense that what's happening here is we are grafting something that comes out of kind of social democracy and really ultimately out of like this is medieval history stuff. This is the whole guild system Mm -hmm. being uh, transformed by the Industrial Revolution. We're grafting that onto a country that explicitly rejected that legacy and that has always tried to set itself up as the opposite of it. And you can't really do that. I mean, as we were saying, what this creates, this this uh, over-reliance on unpaid labor, what it creates is an aristocracy within these industries, which is a thing we're supposed to be against, but here we are. And at the same time, it also makes it impossible or it also necessitates 
the creation of institutions that will parallel things like apprenticeships, things like training. Because you can't ask corporations to do it because how dare you ask anyone to give up their hard-earned profit or their hard-earned bonus checks? I mean, their butt muscles took quite a pounding being in that chair all day. Um, there is one paragraph in here where he tries to, uh, you know, to be sure the arguments that he's inevitably going to get from critics um, and where he lays out the case that there are some unpaid internships that are bad. Uh, quote, mission-driven nonprofits are open to valid charges of hypocrisy if they're not willing to align their labor practices with what they preach. Shut up. Progressive institutions such as The Nation magazine need to make the case to their donors that providing opportunities to young people of modest means should be a priority. <laughs> and I read this because it makes a useful transition to our final segment, which we will get to after this break. You're listening to Punching Out on Wayo 104.3. You can subscribe to the show or listen to past episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and other podcast apps. We are also on Facebook and Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah and Lou. Hey, guys. We've been talking about the ways in which companies and other institutions exploit their young you workers who are Facebook eager to get a Twitter foot in the industry or just in the workforce your work stories, by you know, not paying them as much as they should, mainly, but also in other ways. Punching out is a project and we're going to talk collective. in this our last segment is Ryan about Brister. the way that Music manifests in our government. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. It is another white power field where people are expected to do these unpaid interviews in order to get a foot in the door. And where, unsurprisingly, the American gentry has, uh, an, shall we say, an outsized presence. <laughs> I read from an article in The Atlantic before the break uh, citing uh, readers who had talked about their experiences in uh, unpaid internships and the like. And one one of the readers talked explicitly about this industry, uh, I think it's important to consider the implications of all this unpaid labor has on society, especially within the industries that largely require entire chunks of time and resources from those aspiring to join them, particularly within the public sector. One glaring example of this is the field of legislative aid job opportunities that are often only handed out to those who have toiled away for months and indeed sometimes years on end as campaign volunteers. Now, we also read from that article in Slate making the devil's advocate case for unpaid internships. We did do that. And hmm. when one paragraph he talked about uh, how the nation sh as a progressive magazine should be willing to step up and abide by their values and pay their workers. But no one else needs to. Hmm. Just, just He's worried about the hypocrisy. You know, he's worried about the hypocrisy. And – it, that's a nice transition because there was an article in The Nation uh, a couple weeks ago talking about the Joe Biden campaign and uh, headline, the Biden campaign pushed Iowa staffers to drive in dangerous weather. Um, campaigns, uh, presidential campaigns are big for this sort of volunteerism and, you know, expecting people to get by on their passion instead of, you know, pay, uh, <laughs> which Love is – to eat passion. You know, big fan. As we've been saying, Delicious. it excludes a lot of people who you know cannot get by on passion alone. That that passion won't pay the rent. 
Quote, uh, on December 30th, with Iowa sheathed in snow, the campaign's regional organizing director for Iowa, Kay Glad, instructed staffers that its inclement weather policy was being suspended, according to staff text messages reviewed by the nation. The policy had allowed them to avoid driving during potentially hazardous weather conditions, but at that busy time, it was being called off. It seems funny to me that, uh, you know, the moment there's inclement weather, the inclement weather policy is suspended. (laughs) That's pretty classic. Um, Quote, hey, guys, all weather policy is dissolved throughout the entire state because we have five weeks left until the election, Kay Glad informed staffers. If it feels like unsafe driving conditions, then talk to me separately. But quite frankly, I don't want to hear any complaints because you know how important this is and how much time we have left. This lady needs to go work for a way. Yes, that, that's it, exactly yeah, what came to mind. Uh, it's the same tone. I, I messaged this article to uh, Lou and t- talked about, um, you know, real Steph Corey vibes to, <laughs> yes. to this one. Yeah. But the, the Biden campaign told me that Iowa is uh, similar to how it is in baseball markets. It's also the case when it comes to regional organizing that she's only one of eight regional directors and she only has a dozen volunteers. Which, I mean, she might now after they gave her a good talking to, but... Um, Glad added, and this is the quote that (laughs) really uh, galls me. uh, Great By showing an ability to be adaptable, flexible, and willing to what you've been hired to do, then that is the most basic threshold of demonstrating your ability of leading others. Every single day is an audition for post-Iowa, which presumably means staying on with the campaign as and, it goes further and, and yeah. maybe getting a White House job down the line. And driving in a hurricane at some point, I imagine, as yeah. well. Right. Uh, I, I feel like – but the thing is getting in a car accident because you're driving in heavy amounts of snow is the most basic threshold of you know dying. <laughs> so it's, it's essentially saying you have – okay, so – The Biden campaign, right, from the get-go, touted the fact that he was a union man from Scranton, Pennsylvania, and that he was pro-labor and this and that. And we sorts of uh, symbols for working class without necessarily the substance. Yes. Uh, You know, he couldn't have been more symbolic about this if he'd driven a pickup truck. But (laughs) the thing with him is that he says all of this. And we know that's not true. We've known that's not true for decades. But rarely – but you'd think that this is the one thing. This is the kind of thing that that campaign would be at pains to avoid. Mm -hmm. Please don't make yourself look terrible to your own employees if you're going to say that you're going to help the little guy stand up against the big guy. And again, we know that Biden's not really like that. This has – it has been open – season on him for over a year at this point mm-hmm. and good he deserves it but it just it really puts it in stark relief how much these people expect you to put yeah they're literally asking this is a cult put, yeah put your life on the line yeah, for something you have to be that, willing to die for this man right it's startup mentality it is it's i i want to especially that line at the end when she's talking about the audition for Post Iowa, that whole mentality of well, if you do a good job, we might take you on. I want to see a study that looks at how many times somebody has worked for free and actually gotten a job doing the thing that they had been doing for free. Mm-hmm. I I want to look at that because my guess is zero. How many times has the exposure helped? Yeah, somebody I, like that. Take I off. don't think it does because. 
why would they hire you? You said you were going to do it for free and now you're demanding to be paid. Nah, they'll yep. go with somebody else. Somebody who does have more experience and has already been paid. Like that doesn't happen. And it's a myth that, that we keep telling young people, especially that that's the way they have to get into the workforce is you need to volunteer. I'm not saying that all volunteer positions are bad or, you know, exploitative. They aren't, but a lot are, especially when you're talking about something that does control millions of dollars mm -hmm. and does have the capacity to pay people. And, you know, internships, especially internship is just a formal volunteer program. Yep. That's what these are. What it, what it eventually comes down to is that you have a subset within the labor force, I, which I'm hesitant to call it the labor force at this level that I'm about to say, but it's people who are very highly paid who have tons of credentials, formal credentials that they can put on their resume, but you don't even need to look at them because you just know who they are in the industry. And so they get to jet set around and drop in wherever they're wanted and people go to them. And they they all think, mistakenly, but they all think this, that they got where they were by, you know, this one conversation that led to this one volunteer thing that led to this job, that blah, 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 blah. And so they've decided that in their beneficence and mercy, they are going to gift us with the same experience. But what they miss out on is the fact that like part-time jobs existed then that could allow you to live and pay for schooling and pay for credentials and things like that. They forget all the other things. Like I can't tell you how many of my students uh, before or after they leave school are telling me how much their parents, especially if the parents are older, are pressuring them into taking jobs and doing things that they honestly shouldn't have to. Like a lot of these kids are drowning in work as it is and they're being pressured into doing volunteer gigs and doing internships and trying to find stuff that a high school student should be nowhere near because, oh, it might lead to something down the line. It might look better on your college application. Yes, mm -hmm. so, or in your so resume. one day you can get Matt Iglesias' spot at Harvard. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, what ends up, and what ends up happening with all of this is that really what they're telling you, they don't want to say it this way. It earns you a spot, hopefully, in the good old boy network. You know, it, le it lets you get – it lets you become a little spoke of a hub that then leads to the, the larger market. It gives you an in. That's ultimately what it's all about. It, it just continues to perpetuate the existing abuse mm -hmm. instead of breaking out of it because, again, like I said before – None of these people can think their way out of a paper bag and they're not willing to because then they might get a lower paycheck and you just can't have that. Yeah, it's the hierarchies are sort of self-fulfilling. You know, they find yeah. ways to reproduce themselves. Like Harvard. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Because Harvard has all these, uh, what are they called? Legacy admissions where, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, if you have a relative who's been there, you've mm -hmm. got one foot in the door already. And they're bored literally each time that somebody leaves or dies the rest of the board gets together to appoint the new person. They're literally a self-replenishing uh, self corporation. And that's what they all want to be. They all want to say every – the thing you have to understand, and I think this is a, not to brag, but a decent message to put in the 100th episode of Punching Out. The thing you have to understand is that all these corporations, every regulation, every law, everything that has been done to weaken their power and reduce their power has been basically – resisted at every turn, argued against at every turn. I can't use the next word I was going to use, but 
they have tried to cheat workers out of every single one of these small marginal victories because what they want to do is they all want to sit around the smallest possible tables and decide everything themselves without any input from the rest of us. And if you think that you're ever going to get to join them, that sounds like a you problem, quite frankly. <laughs> Save up your money to take an unpaid internship for yeah, the summer. Yeah, take several. Yep. Take a few dozen. See if that works out for you. Mm -hmm. But they're not going to let you. If you, you know if you ever have a seat at that table. Yep. You know that now. Your parents knew at the moment you were born. Slight tangent, my best okay. thing. Fire away. Love it. I think that it, you must be upper class if your attitude about unpaid internships and volunteer work is exactly the same about uh, taking a, an extended vacation abroad <laughs> in that it, it builds the same amount of character. So your labor is exactly the same as a vacation. That's got to be a the biggest indicator of your class out of anything else out there, frankly. And I, I guess we should note yep. the uh, positive examples in this, which is uh, we've seen uh, the Bernie Sanders campaign was the first to unionize, but mm -hmm. a few of his competitors followed. Uh, I think Liz Warren's did, Cory Booker's maybe. Pete Buttigieg's, yeah. surprisingly. Yeah. Um, I think Klobuchar's did, and then there's he's one work, Don't other worry, one. he's working on a policy to uh, undermine it. Don't worry. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He's got it in floating in the back No, he's, he's already got, like, former CIA guys watching <laughs> every organizer. It's, it, he's going to hire McKinsey in a minute here and just lay them off for no reason. But I, I think you can also make the case that those unions well, don't seem to have slowed their effectiveness. No, not at all. In fact, yeah. probably have, having decent that. working conditions for your staffers is a good thing because it engenders, you know, passion. Yeah, passion and the sort of uh, respect that people should have for their presidential right. candidates. Yeah. I guess it, it's nice to have passion. It's better to have passion and food. Yeah, it's better to have passion and shelter, because when all of these people talk about passion and. Again, they're remembering their Andy Griffith show lives. Um, mm. What they're actually talking about is fear. And they don't realize that because there is a similar adrenaline infusion to those things, you know? Mm -hmm. But they're only thinking of the good times, basically, of the times when uh, they were able to do this thing. And they're not remembering all the times that they were afraid of getting fired, afraid of getting underpaid, afraid of getting treated badly afraid of just their boss and their boss's boss and all of these other things that happen to every worker. And now they're immune to them. Mm -hmm. So they, they literally, they can't think of this. Matt Iglesias has not realized what the working situation is for 95% of people because he has never worked a real day in his life. It's simple as that. And most of these people can't remember the last time they worked at a real job. So all they have to go on is a very limited set of experience. Uh, and, that, that's what the rest of us are dealing with. We are governed by people who largely, who by and large, have never worked at anything resembling what the majority of us are saddled with. And so they've never had the Chipotle job. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or if they did, they had it 40 years ago when it was very different. I mean, you heard, uh, you know, Rahm Emanuel won't shut up about the Arby's thing that sliced off his finger. But what do you think his views on workplace injuries are? Yeah. So you have a, a political class of people that. Uh, again, they're not going to give any of this up without power. And here's hoping that if you, if if one of these candidates can take a unionized campaign staff all the way through, yeah. that some of those people actually begin to realize, like, it might change the face of what our government looks like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it it might and be who's nice allowed to take part in it. Mm -hmm. yep. yep, exactly. 
Um, for this, our 100th episode, we've run out of time. I would like to thank both of you for being on, you know, not just this show, but all the ones in the past. Uh, you've passed the audition. You're going to stay on post 100. Yeah. Um, Didn't even have to drive in snow to do it. <laughs> well, a little we, snow. We did. A little snow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Ryan. I'm Lou. I'm Noah. This is Punching <laughs> Out. <laughs>